There is no such thing as a natural-born prodigy. It took him 10 years to write that, but um, in the early 1990s, when a uh, Swedish psychologist by the name of Anders uh, Ericsson began to study what he called the peak performance, it's, it's how do people that we consider so blessed, how do they perform at levels much higher than the rest of us. I mean, there seems to be a lot of players, and then there are a few athletes that just seem to really excel. There's a lot of people that know how to run things, but then there's a few people that look like savants. You look to the platform, and you see people playing different instruments, and you think, my goodness, how did they get into that kind of place? And so he studied this, and after 10 years, he wrote, there is no such thing as a natural-born prodigy. When you think about it, it's a pretty profound discovery because most of us look at people that perform at high levels and the first word out of our mouth is talent. They are so talented. They're gifted. They got charisma. They're lucky. But Erickson's research starts to make us question whether we are right or wrong about that. He discovers that talent is important, but it's vastly overrated. It's responsible for maybe 10% of a person's performance, but the other 90% is rigor and grit. And he discovers that these people who perform at high levels Every one of them have mastered a very small set of skills. And after years of practice, they have done those things so efficiently and easily that it appears to the rest of us to be just natural. And when we see it, we go, oh, look, it's just so natural for them. Really, it's not. Erickson said, there is a hidden life to a genius. And they work hard to cover it up. All you see is the performance. He discovered that this can happen later on in a person's life, that it doesn't all have to start when we're in our childhood, that the plasticity of the brain's longer than we thought, and if we're willing to learn new things and risk failure, we can develop far into our adult years. And he discovered that what these people learn and the practices that they go through are what he called deliberate practice. A deliberate practice, he said, is repetition. It's performing the same little act thousands of times and relentlessly. After everybody else goes home, you're still at it. And you're doing it in the presence of a master teacher who has done that better than anybody else. And when you outgrow that teacher, you find another one. And then you find another one. And this teacher pushes you beyond your comfort zone so you are always trying things and doing things that you're not very good at. But the longer you fumble, the more efficient you become. Then when you're in public or when you have a big decision to make or when you pick up an instrument or when you write, you just reach into those resources that you developed in the hidden life and you draw from them. 
Now you're wondering, no doubt, why I'm telling you this. Aren't you? It feels like a locker room talk, doesn't it? Well, I'm thinking about discipleship. What is the hidden life of a disciple? Why do we look at some people in the room right now and think that it came easier for them? Why is it some people in their walk with Christ just seem to have the perfect words at the right time? Why is it some people can just reach for abilities and then draw on them and we look at them and just go, man, it is so easy for them. The truth of the matter is, they're working not only as hard as we are, they're probably working harder than we are, longer than we are, in the company of a master teacher who is always pushing them to do more and more. And that can seem harsh. But they will have to open themselves up to criticism. They will have to risk failure. They will have to stay active. But if they do, they can become incredible followers of Jesus. And that's what you see. Are you there? So last week I talked to you about being a prophet. Some of you liked it, but some of you didn't. And I'm wondering this morning what the hidden life of a prophet is. What is the deliberate practice that a prophet goes through in private that nobody else sees so that when they draw on those resources and they perform them in public, you and I watch what they do in public and you think, man, that person just must be gifted. And you would be about 10% right. But what is underneath the tip of the iceberg? For the moment, if I can go back and pick some of you up, because you worried about this call of being a prophet. <laughs> if you can, in your mind, distinguish between the functions of a prophet and the title of a prophet, then you are well on your way. If you can figure out that what prophets actually do not the title, not all their behaviorisms. Nobody wants you to run around wild-eyed, pistol-waving Jeremiah, smashing things, wearing yokes, streaking naked through the city. Don't try this. Nobody expects you to open your mouth like Isaiah and just gush images that rouse audiences to their feet. If you just distill what prophets do, Maybe you could learn that. One of the things they do is they speak reality into whatever the dominant narrative is. That is, if you look at every domain in this room right now, whether it's athletics, whether it's the market, whether it's business, whether it's art, there is a small set of assumptions that dominate that narrative Prophets see that narrative, but they also see another one, the narrative of God. And they are constantly comparing the two narratives. What is the culture saying about my discipline? And what does Almighty God say about my discipline? 
So they're always speaking reality into the dominant narrative, whatever that is. Prophets are among the first ones to advocate for the marginalized and the oppressed. But if you actually read the prophets, you discover they don't do this by staging protests. They do this by grieving and lamenting. And so prophets are people who are way ahead of the rest of us in capturing the injustices of the world. And they bring that up in their language to God in the form of a lament. And the people around them, some of them anyway, follow. Prophets have the ability to stand in the middle of something that is in decay. And they can see what it would look like when Almighty God is in charge again. And so prophets are powerful in their language, not because they're better at language than the rest of us, but because they have something to say. They can see what shape the world is in, but they can also see what it looks like when God is in charge. And they paint beautiful pictures of how the world would be when Yahweh was running everything. Are you still there? Now you can see why I can't let this image go. I don't think every one of you are called to the title or the role or the position of a prophet, but you guys, I can't let the vision go that we are called to the function of a prophet because there is nothing that this culture needs more than somebody, just one person, please, in every discipline who has the capacity to see not only what is wrong, but what would be right when God was in charge. Could there be one person in every discipline in the room who always sees the world as it is, but they see the world that God has called for, and they cry for justice. And they advocate for the oppressed. Maybe it's just me. It must be, because you're sitting pretty quiet. I can't think of a single discipline in this room that would not get better if it had one person, just one dear God, who could do that. You're still quiet. Amen. That's right. <laughs> but how does this happen? What is the hidden life? How much of this is the Holy Spirit? And how much of it is you? Walking in the Spirit. You ever had trouble with your laptop? Your, you guys don't have desktops anymore, do you? Your grandparents do, but you don't. 
And you, you couldn't get it to work. I mean, it's not, so you call tech support, some, I don't know, some dude really smart, and, and he talks you through how you're going to fix your laptop to get it working again. And while he's talking, you can't get it to work, can't get it to work. And then all of a sudden, when all things have come to an end, he or she says, okay, I need you to surrender control of your laptop over to me and let me what's called remote in. Have, have you done this? You're acting like this, oh yeah, so what? That's creepy, you guys. You push control, alt, and when you do this, all of a sudden, this dude who's not even in the room starts running your laptop. You can see the cursor going over, you can see the files opening up, and they're typing a whole bunch of funny codes. And you're thinking, what? And your hands are back like this. And you think, this is amazing. And then when it's all over, they say, okay, I think we fixed the problem. I'm going to turn your computer back over to you again. Well, that's how some people think the Holy Spirit works in us. Is it not? We come to the altar, we pray the prayer. That's like control, alt, seven. And it kind of turns our life over to the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, it's just like, holy cow, Man, I was taking notes on me. The spirit was just, he was, I was doing things I never dreamed of doing. And then when the moment is over, the spirit says, okay, I don't need to do this anymore. I'm going to turn your boring life back over to you. And just as quickly as it came, this anointing dissipates and it's gone. What if it actually works this way? The Holy Spirit comes upon us in a moment with the baptism, cleansing, anointing, pouring, filling. And that moment, like talent, is indispensable but it is never enough. Because in the New Testament, there is all of this rich liturgy of words that speak about walking in the Spirit, speaking in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit, listening to the Spirit, presenting ourselves to the Spirit, embodying the Spirit. And you guys, none of those words seem like a moment in time to me. They all seem like an ongoing rigor and discipline that we build into the hidden life. So I want to focus only on one this morning, walking in the Spirit. I have a feeling that people who are able to suddenly step into a moment and they have the right words to say, and sometimes it's nothing. There are people in this room who when they walk into a room and it's total chaos, their very presence calms things down. They don't even know this. There's people in the room that have the ability to see not only what is happening, but what is really happening, and they can do it effortlessly and I have a feeling that that in a hundred other abilities all rises from the daily discipline of walking in the spirit
When we walk in the Spirit, we develop tendencies and personalities that the Spirit can use in many different situations. We never have to gin up to do anything. It's there because we developed it. I think walking in the Spirit consists of two acts, two legs. One is the act of discernment. Where is God active in this space? In whom is God active? And what might he be doing? And then we follow that with faith. What kind of activity must I do to participate in what God is doing? Does that make sense? Where is God active? How do I join him? And where I see God is active and I join him in that space, new things become apparent to me that weren't apparent a few weeks ago. And now with that new knowledge, I see that God is active again. And so I will step into that moment. If I keep going, I'll leave. You see how that might work? So I'm thinking of the story of Exodus. There's two verses in Exodus chapter 14 that put these two abilities side by side. In Exodus chapter 14, Israel has been led out of Egypt. They're standing by the Red Sea. The Lord has not led them down the straight road, but down the crooked road is what Exodus said. And now down the crooked road where they don't want to be, they're standing at the sea with the Egyptian army behind them. And there in chapter 14, verse 14, Moses turns around and says to the people, don't panic. (laughs) The Lord your God will fight for you. You need only be still. Try doing that in a crisis. Everybody calm down. God will do the fighting. You just need to be still. That's verse 14. In verse 15, the next thing out of God's mouth is, why on earth are you just standing there? Get my people moving. Forward march. So you put this to, wait a minute, we got the... Moses, dude, telling everybody to calm down, and we got Almighty God saying, no, now is not the time to calm down. Now is the time to move. And you guys, I can't see anything but this cooperation with the movement of God. God will lead them to a place where there is no water, and he will tell Moses, go speak to the rock. And if Moses, following those impulses will speak to the rock they will see God's activity in the rock all you need to do is obey me the same thing will happen with the manna like it was when they went through the sea it is one miracle after another the people are never just sitting there with God dropping these things on top of them God is always walking with his people 
through places that they don't want to be. And when they discern what God is doing and step into it, that's when rocks spill water and bread forms on the ground and water separates and pillars of cloud appear in the desert. So in Isaiah's sermon, you heard that read a few moments ago. In Isaiah 63, we step into the middle of Isaiah's sermon, and what he's doing in this is he's retelling the entire story of Exodus through the language of the Holy Spirit. He uses the word spirit, Holy Spirit, three times in connection with the Exodus. And if this doesn't rattle you, consider the fact that most Christians sound like they invented the Holy Spirit. Like, like nothing much in the Old Testament about the Holy Spirit. But Isaiah says, if you read Exodus like you're supposed to, the angel that led them, the pillar of fire that came from in front of them and went behind them. The pillar of cloud just over Aaron's shoulder while the people grumbled about food. The strong, mighty wind from the east that drove the waters apart and created dry ground. The wind from the west that drove the locusts in to consume the fields of Egypt. None of this says Isaiah was simple natural forces all of it was the Holy Spirit it gives you an entirely new appreciation for the kind of firepower that we're dealing with here yes that yes that this is the spirit that is in you <laughs> holy cow can you imagine what we might do that we cannot presently do if we were committed to the rigor of keeping in step with the Spirit, going to work tomorrow, and instead of saying, what's my job? How do I get a promotion? We say, where is God active in this place? Who is God already speaking to that I have been groomed to ignore? What might God want to be doing in this space? And how do I cooperate with him? What does he need now? What can I do? What word? What call, what note, what gesture can I do to cooperate with the Holy Spirit? For a number of years, I've practiced the habit of walking. And for me, the faster the better. I have 38-inch inseams, and so when I get moved, about as tall as you are, ain't it? Yeah, that's right. I was standing next to Tim a few minutes ago. If I stand, I looked over, like, my waist up to your chest, brother. 
You'd have your pants up to your, no, stop. So like if I can get these legs going at full speed, I can hit about six miles per hour, which isn't, I know, flying, but it's moving fast enough that my wife has to ride a bike in order to go for a walk. I'll walk and you ride. So it's helped tremendously when I go through airports because they'll drop you off at Terminal A and you got to pick up Terminal C and that's a long ways away. But I know that if I put these 30 pounds of books on my back and I start flying with these inseams, I can cover some turf. So a few Maybe 20 years ago, I noticed that these airports uh, started to develop what's called a travelator. It's an escalator laid flat. It's a moving sidewalk. There, you seen one? You need, a, yeah, some of you are like, what do you, you fly. You go into the airport, Indy has one. And this thing just cruises from point A to point B. So I don't know where I was, but I was walking through and I looked over, I thought, man, that is amazing. But it was going kind of slow. And so I, I was going to jump on it, but it was lined with old people. And they weren't walking. I couldn't. Like, they would get on it, and then they would, like, lean on the rail like this while it just cruised them a lot. Things going two miles an hour. And they're going like this. And I'm thinking, there's no way on this. So out of protest, with 30 pounds of books, I would walk next to the travelator as fast as I could, and I would fly right by them. Then one day, I think it was Dallas. The airport was fairly empty. And I noticed there was no one on the travelator. And I thought to myself, what would happen if I could get six miles an hour on top of two miles an hour? I could move. And so in mid-stride, I jumped from one onto the other, and I just kept going while the travelator was carrying me. Mmm, man. On a good day when I'm walking the neighborhood, I can hear the wind in my ears every day. But that time, I felt the wind in my wings. I was flying. The stores on both sides were just whipping by. And the old people who were now sitting were looking going, that old boy don't need another flight. I think he's going to walk that way. So when I think about walking in the Spirit, I think about the Holy Spirit already being present in the place where I work because, well, He is. And sometimes I think about myself as walking alongside of the Spirit, working even harder than I should. We're both going in the same direction, usually at two different speeds. But we're not together. What would happen if you would take all of that talent and that knowledge and that natural hunger that you have 
for greatness and put ego aside and jump on to the momentum of the Holy Spirit, mm, what could you do? There is a moving sidewalk in every dorm, every office, every gymnasium, every market, every business. What would happen if you became so good at this you could hear the Holy Spirit say to you, like he did Philip in Acts chapter 8. See that guy riding over there in that chariot? Go stand next to him. And because you were able to discern the Holy Spirit, and because you obeyed impulsively, not because it was, wait for it, the holy grail in higher education. Reasonable. Look, the worst can happen is you'd be Pentecostal. Which isn't bad. If you could just put almighty reason aside and, and just... Do what you think the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do. You might step into information or people that you know nothing about. All right? How are we doing? Because I'm almost done. Are you there? Let me give you three places in my life where I'm not going to belabor the point. Relax. Three places in my life where it is hardest to do this. And I do this because I think it's the, these are the very three places it's going to be hard for you to practice this. If you're like me, you never walk when you can drive and never drive when you can fly. So you're always thinking fast, fast, fast. Here are the areas. Number one, small talk. Most people that you live with or work with are not in a crisis every day. Most people are not on the edge of making a heavy decision. Sometimes they are, but most of the time, the people that you live and work with lead pretty ordinary, mundane lives. And if you're like me, you tend to hate small talk. You want to get right to the meat of an issue. Why talk about the Indianapolis Colts when you talk about the Lions? No, I'm kidding. You could, when you could talk about superlopsarianism. I mean, why would we meander down this conversation about cooking and the raising of children when we can have a meaningful conversation about how to get saved? Eugene Peterson says, 
When we avoid small talk, we abandon the places where most people live. And the gospel has been misrepresented. Besides, he said, sometimes things can only be learned by laughing about them. Or they can only be learned by speaking at them obliquely. That means indirectly. You'd be surprised what we can learn from small talk if we would linger there. Second, holy impulses. <laughs> a couple hundred years ago, a dude named Jean-Pierre de Cassaw wrote this piece called The Sacrament of the Present Moment. And in it, he said, every moment of our life is a sacrament. We can meet God there. Crucial to understanding this, said Cassatt, is we must learn to follow sudden urges that come from deep within us and tell us to try something, say something, do something. And most of us, driven by reason and worried about outcomes, I say that, I'm going to look like that. We talk ourselves out of most of these impulses. Oddly enough, if we would follow them, says Cassatt, we may find God in those places with an agenda entirely his own, giving us things we would never have found down the beaten path. So learn to take chances when you sense it is God. Not every impulse, by the way. When you sense it is God, learn to take chances. Try it. Third, last. Interruptions. As long as we are dividing our lives into things we planned and things we didn't, we will miss half of our lives. Agendas will walk into the room, call us on the phone, send us a text, sometimes just stop us in traffic and start a conversation that is far outside of our interest zone. And if we can for a moment suspend our agenda, the urgent, and stay fully present in, while I was writing this, just this week, I'm writing this very part. We have to learn how to handle distractions. My phone rings in the middle of prep. Because I live on a stream of consciousness. My instinct was, it. It was not, oh, what does the Lord want me to do? Opportunity. 
I was like, gum!" I looked down. That's swearing if you're a Christian. I looked, I looked down, and it was someone. I don't even remember who it was, but it was someone in the church. And I went, oh, man, I had to be. No, shoot. So I opened it up, and I started talking. And it turned out being a really good, fruitful conversation. <laughs> And when it was over, I was like hung up and I put it on. I said, wow, that went really well. I, 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 I think I heard the Lord say, see? <laughs> there are agendas that are not yours that are just as important. And the Spirit is moving just as fast in those places, doing things that you don't much care about. But boy, if you could step into those and say, what is God doing with this interruption right now? And what might it take for me to meet him there? You've had enough. Are you all right? Oh, church. In the back of my, no, in the front of my mind, I see in this room people from every discipline that are going back to their places of work or you're going into your fields of study and you're not thinking about making a living, that is taken care of. Move on. You're thinking about how can I leverage this place and this moment to do the thing Almighty God is doing in that place. How can I come alongside this interruption? How can I see him in this small talk? How do I cooperate with those hunches or impressions in a way that will make the Father's heart glad? And then, the better you get at this, because nobody, no one, suddenly jumps up and starts walking. Everyone who learns to walk falls. And they get up and they fall again. And you'll do this. But the more you do it, the better you'll get.